Welcome to Meaning What. I'm your host, Mason Hirschnow. On today's episode, Sean and I talk to visual artist Daniel Alejandro Trejo about how his queer Latinx identity shapes his art, how COVID is disrupting graduate school, and our issues with 1960s minimalist sculpture. Well, welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you on. I'm nervous. <laughs> There's nothing to be nervous about. We don't bite too much. Okay. <laughs> well, you are a, a visual artist. Can you talk about like how you got into art? <laughs> how you got into art and, and how you would sort of describe your practice? Yeah, for sure. Um, I pretty much got into it late. I feel like I got a late start into it in a sense that I started it in like my junior year of college and my high school we really didn't have that many art courses and with like the ongoing budget cuts on creative classes you know that are happening my high school didn't really offer them so I didn't take my first art class until senior year of high school and that was like very 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 basic art stuff you know getting getting familiar with all the elementary stuff and in community college I took my very first art class which was sculpture and I fell in love with it and I guess I just kept continuing with that, like, later when I went to Davis, and then after Davis, you know, getting kicked out with, you know, the degree and everything, and then figuring out, like, how do I find a studio space, how to keep maintaining the practice, it becomes really difficult. And, like, thankfully, right now, I have a studio space at Burge Center for the Arts, and I've been here since 2016, so, so yeah. What drew you first to sculpture? So what was, like, that aha moment? Oh, yeah. Okay. So what drew me to sculpture was that all the classes were booked up already. So <laughs> painting was booked. Everything else was booked, like photography and everything. And I was like, well, sculpture, I, I, like, I guess I'll do this. <laughs> you know, and it's really intimidating because you have to do like the machinery and then all the safety procedures too. Like that's pretty much the first couple of days that you have to familiar, familiarize yourself with. And then after that, you know, it's kind of intimidating, like working with the different saws and then also the welding things too. It's like, it's really intimidating. But once you overcome that, it's really empowering. It's like, who doesn't like playing with fire? Who doesn't like playing with dangerous objects, you know? And then making something big or something really small out of it. I think it's really wonderful. And I think that, that having those resources is what really propelled me to continue working in sculpture. You know, I feel like, I feel like painting is very safe. You know, photography is kind of dangerous, too, because you're like out there interacting with the public sometimes. And it can be very unpredictable to how things go. Yeah, we were um, in an interview we recorded yesterday. We were talking about how um, how often it gets forgotten that so many, especially visual art practices, are not just you're not just a painter. You're not just a sculptor. You're not just a photographer. Like it comes with additional things for for the sculpture that you do. It's like working in a shop and, and having all that knowledge and photo. It's knowledge of physics and chemistry and and also the social interaction. We forget that when we talk about the arts and educating the arts. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of, there's a lot of science that actually goes into the arts. And I think a lot of people aren't really that familiar with it. And it, I think it's even more amplified in ceramics. In ceramics, when you're making the glazes and everything, you're working with all sorts of chemicals, you know, and when you combine certain ingredients together, it changes color, changes the texture and everything. Another thing, you're also working with physics too. I mean, sculpture, you're working against gravity. So everything just wants to naturally fall down or pull down. Right. So there's a real physical danger there, even. Exciting. For you and, and for whoever is in front of or around the art or installing it or whatever. Yeah, I'm really tiny. I need some assistance. So I'm like, whenever <laughs> I'm making something big, I'm like, I need, 
I need three more Daniels, you know, to help me out. <laughs> so, it, yeah. So as the world has been ending, have you essentially been able to keep up your practice? No, hell no. Like <laughs> I feel, I don't know. I feel like there's this really, there's this intense weight and I don't know how the rest of, you know, those working in the arts are feeling. I mean, with the lack of the, you know, with the galleries closing and all this good stuff. And also with some folks aren't able to afford their the rent, not just like living situations, but studio rent too. Some folks are losing studio spaces too, or some studio spaces closed down because of COVID. It's kind of difficult to produce new work for me because like, I feel like I cannot focus my energy on making something new, knowing that the world is crumbling around me. I don't know if you've seen those memes where it's like um, Will Ferrell like shouting while there's like a building collapsing or whatever, like the world's on fire. It's like, does anyone want to buy a design? It's kind of like me. It's like, does anyone want to give me a solo show while everything's <laughs> like going to hell in a handbasket politically? <laughs> yeah. And that's something that inevitably has come up as we've interviewed people in ourselves. It's just like the existential dread and how that kind of affects every part of the artistic process. Um, and I know that you were, you applied to and got into some grad schools just kind of just before all this shit hit the fan. So, you know, this is not the ideal situation to go to grad school, but are you still considering going after, you know, the world is not dangerous. And do you think it's necessary for where you want to go with your career? Fuck, I don't know. That's a really difficult, you know, idea to even think about because it's like I'm going day by day right now the future is very very unpredictable you know especially with a meteorite coming in like in November or something like that Mm -hmm. I love reading the news you know (laughs) and applying for graduate school that was such a hashtag experience simply because it's like you're preparing for a portfolio and everything and this is in the winter time and then after grad school interviews and it's like February mid-March you know and then boom the pandemic just kind of explodes and there's really no time to rest so like lately this summer I feel like I've just been doing a lot of that like kind of just being a potato in the couch not really not really doing anything and it's been making me question a lot about like what graduate school will look like because that's a lot of something that I was doing I was interrogating a lot of these schools like so if I do go what is the program going to look like you know I need a studio space. That's the program. It's like you guys are selling. That's the part of the program. It's like studio practices, like not Zoom, you know, studio practices or whatever. Otherwise, I would stay here in Sacramento, you know. And then all of these schools were saying that, you know, studio facilities were not going to be available and yada, yada, yada. And then a lot of these things, too, where like the arts is just it's just like completely a mess, especially with the whole idea of the, um, the Black Lives Matter movement that's been going on with a lot of these institutions, pretty much tokenizing, exploiting artists of color. It's, it's, it's horrible. The Whitney, yeah, I'm like, which one was it? The Whitney recently, like... Right, oh my they, God. They fucked, over, they fucked over so many artists. Like, they bought paintings and other works, like, off of an auction. And then later, they were, like, emailing folks up, like, yo... This painting that I bought for like fifty dollars, I'm gonna exhibit it at the Whitney. So they did like a really lazy exhibition or curatorial project around that. So I mean, I, I'm, I should I shouldn't talk shit because they might come after us. So because <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna be the most famous arts podcast of all time. Hey, this shit might blow up. So <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. And I guess I should warn you now. I have my my own practice is built around institutional critique. So everybody who is tied to this is. Uh, you're all going down by association. 
We're here to burn shit down. Oh yeah, we're we're gonna be banned from all these folks who are like in these high board of trustees and all this stuff. We're banned. We're blacklisted. <laughs> right. I was never gonna get into the Whitney Biennial anyway, so uh, I might as well ruin it for everyone else too. <laughs> Fuck the Whitney. So, do you want to talk about your experiences with tokenism and? You know, you've shown in galleries, so you know this kind of process a little bit. Just a little bit. Sorry, I'm like being so shy. I'm like, just just a little bit. You know, like, no. It's been interesting, like, seeing also or talking to other curators, too, or like other folks who are interested in creating new shows. And we're trying so hard not to center it around white people or the or the white audience, you know? We're really trying to make it as diverse as possible. Right now, just emphasizing mostly on voices that really haven't been heard or like these voices that have been essentially just used as a one-time thing. It's like, oh, like, let's make this particular show about just like the Latinx identity. And it only happens like once every 10 years and then boom, that's about it. Well, everything else is like white dude, white dude, white dude, white dude, you know. And I think a great way to go about that is just like thinking more critically about the community too and where these galleries are are located. Most of these galleries are usually located in predominantly black and brown neighborhoods. And these galleries don't serve those neighborhoods. Unfortunately, you have a lot of folks coming in from these affluent neighborhoods just to come in. And then it's like, if you're here, then why aren't you making works or shows about the community here? I mean, Los Angeles, I'm looking at you. Because, like, there's a lot of galleries in L.A. that that have questionable motives. Totally. And Sean and I were talking a little bit before. I've been thinking a lot about the work of, like, um, Don Judd and Hans Hawk a lot lately. That string of, like, minimalist objects for the sake of objects and, and that sort of inherent genius. And there was a really, there was a really great article recently in the Atlantic about a Judd retrospective recently. And and this woman brought her toddler to it and her toddler just wanted to play on Judd's work the whole time. It's like, you know, these are brightly colored things. It looks like a jungle gym and it looks like boxes and stuff to climb on. Um, and obviously that's not what it's intended there for. Um, and so I like, part of me is, is hopeful because I feel like sometimes for the wrong reasons, these conversations are finally starting to be had about like, oh shit, we don't have anyone other than white, straight white dudes represented in our gallery collection. We should go about that. But it does cross into that tokenism really quickly. And especially when it is just sort of a temporary thing. So like, what do you, what would be a approach for a gallery to take that would make you feel like, oh, these people are actually like making the right steps or actually care about having me around and not just like having me there. So I check off a box or whatever. Yeah. That's something that I think it's, it's hard. It's like really hard figuring out a solution for that simply because it's like, you're trying to figure out the curator's exhibition history and the gallery's history or the institution's history, you know, of who's on that roster of like what kind of artists they've exhibited before and then for them to suddenly want to show works by marginalized folks, it's like, it becomes more work for the artist because we're trying to figure out like, is this is coming from a place of sincerity or is this coming from a place of like, oh, wow, like I need to do this just to show that I'm, you know, quote unquote, showing support. Then we're going to go back to the regular, quote unquote, regular programming, you know? 
So it becomes like really difficult to identify situations like that. I think one way is to invite curators of color, but then even then that becomes really difficult for them because you're putting more burden on at the end of the day, putting burden on people of color, you know, and it's, it's just, it's so difficult. There's so many different ways that you go about this, but I'm hoping that whatever institution wants to learn about like, okay, well, how can I uplift these voices instead of just like showing that it's just the perform performative, you know, spectacle of me like, Oh, I'm just going to curate a show featuring, you know, black artists or black queer artists, like, boom. Like, no, it's like there were more than just a checkbox, like think more critically of the situation too, and make sure that it's an ongoing practice, like not just a yearly thing. It's like, can you do this, you know, for the remainder of your career? Can you keep curating shows featuring, you know, different voices? It gets into like also how dedicated they are to it in the long term too, I would say. Cause like, like you're saying, like you can bring in a curator of color or, or someone with some sort of background that, meets that but even then wrapped in that are questions especially currently about like their access and their and like the class that they're a part of and then you know that extends down so like i'm hoping that this is also an opportunity to like start really seriously talking about like who gets an education in the arts too yeah figuring out the whole from my experiences of figuring out the whole like grad school application thing I mean, doing undergrad is one thing, but then like going on to graduate school and like just even applying, it's so, so expensive. Like figuring out the the body of work or like making the body of work, professionally photographing it, applying, you know, completing the actual application and then not including the slide room slides that you have to submit plus the fees that go into that. And then like, if you're going to fly out, which some of these schools demand that you fly out, otherwise your, your probability of getting in kind of goes a little bit down, you know, it's, it's, it becomes really expensive. I mean, for everyone, but I think it becomes even more expensive and more stressful for artists of color because it's like all these resources really aren't there for us. And most of us are just working these jobs that don't pay enough. Fortunately, I'm privileged enough to work for the state. So that's like how I keep this going. It's like, it's very soul draining. I hate it. I hate it so much. But, it, you know, I'm able to, to have my practice right now. Because if I didn't have the job that I, that I have right now, I feel like, I feel like my aesthetic might look completely different too. Like my work would look so, so different. So money is a big factor. That's, that's so fascinating to consider that just one kind of change in your environment could change your entire output and kind of your existence as an artist. Yeah, it's really fucked up. But you know what? <laughs> like prior, because I used to sell cell phones. Like as soon as I graduated from, from Davis, I was um, an, an independent contractor tutoring English and math. I'm horrible at math. So I was only teaching elementary or tutoring <laughs> elementary. A lot of the things that I was like applying for, I was shooting it with my iPhone. <laughs> and I actually got really far with, you know, with my iPhone photos instead of prof- professionally shooting it and everything. It's like... You know, you do what you got to do, and then you also have to sell yourself, which is really difficult too, especially once you're you're starting out in this career, especially in this wild career of the arts. So, as I know you as a friend and an artist, I instantly think of like your iconic squiggles and stuff. So, tell us about them. 
<laughs> no, I don't want to. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I'm so tired of this. I've said so many interviews about this. I'm tired. I'm tired. You could just Google me. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Everybody loves that guy that's just like, oh, I don't talk about my art. It is what it is. It exists. And I won't say anything about it. It's, you can it how about you tell me about my art? Like that, you know, it's like <laughs> right. I'm dodging the question immediately. Yeah. So a lot of these things are pretty much based off of... um Violent situations, and they really frame around my upbringing growing up in Stockton, California, which I think was one of the nation's most dangerous cities to live in. Don't know the exact date, but I think it was like 2011 to bring definitely the top five or something like that. And I know that around 2015 or 2016, there was a shooting that happened two, two houses down from where I live where they taped on the entire block and I really couldn't go into my house because I was in studio and I was driving back home. and there really wasn't any access to how to wait, but essentially like what these sculptures reference are body outlines. And I make them really, really vague because a lot of these things or like a lot of the stories that are read in the newspaper, or just in the news in general about these shootings, or even there's this um, really, really trashy Facebook and Instagram group that I occasionally go into called Teal Nine Times that highlights all the awful shit that goes down in Stockton. And it's mostly like all the shootings and violent crimes, the mugging, the robbery and everything that happens. And sometimes they don't post pictures of any, they just describe it. And I really love the idea of just like trying to figure out what this person looked like too. So a lot of the works that I'm doing, or I mean, I'm done with this series. Like I'm so sick of working with this because I've been doing it for the past four years. But a lot of it, I was like really trying to figure out, okay, like, how do I talk about this? And how do I talk about like the ambiguity that comes with like being a victim of violence or also like just with your own identity, whether it's like your gender identity or your sexual orientation, it's like how much of myself do I have to protect myself and diminish myself in order to protect myself? So that's why I decided to make some of these hollow, just you know, just the silhouettes of it. Cause you're just trying to figure out what is it? What are you, why are you existing to? And then with clay, I really like it. Cause it's just an oxymoron type of material. It's like very, very strong, but at the same time, it could be very fragile. You could just break it. That's my elevator pitch. So <laughs> it was good. Do I, I get into grad school? <laughs> Maybe we'll see about it. Okay. You might have to send us <laughs> some more money. Those, those interviews were intense. I was getting red in some of these, so it's just like, man. Mm, that squiggle was not it. Um, can we see another one? <laughs> so, but as of yeah, as an uneducated art viewer, um, maybe comment on it because it's all they're also colored in these like really pastel and bright colors. So you know to know that the influence is something so dark and macabre. There's like an inherent tension there. And as a viewer, if you don't have the context of it, they seem kind of bright and cheery and fun. So do you want to kind of talk about that inherent tension that comes from that? Yes, I love that a lot. I love that juxtaposition of like something being really, really colorful or something very, very bright, but having like a really dark undertone. Um, My point of reference for that is The Addams Family, like think of Morticia and everything, you know, but there's this one movie, I forgot which one is it. It's either like the very first Adams Family movie or the second one where like the character Uncle Fester meets this woman and she is just like very cheery and, you know, like, and there's this one scene where like everything is just like really pastel, but she's like trying to kill him or trying to, you know, like, 
get rid of them to get like all the inheritance and everything. And I really like that idea of something being perceived as safe, but it's not so. And then the other thing too is like, I feel like there's not enough pastels in ceramics. Everything's either earth tones, browns, blacks, whites. Uh, it's like really, I want more variety in ceramics. So it's like, let me contribute to that by making things more colorful. They're really soft shapes too, which is, is it's interesting when you, cause you have these, like you're talking about, like you have these colors that are just like not only soft, but totally, I don't, I don't see too much pastel pink or, or like pistachio green in ceramics. And then they're on top of these soft objects, which are kind of light and elevated when I'm viewing them online, just like looking over them, I don't have that context. And then when you add that context, it's obviously an, an entirely new level of like, Oh, Oh no, this is, this is complicated. You know? Yeah. There's so many layers to the work that I'm thinking about. It's like, I'm thinking a lot about what's going on politically as well. Like I'm thinking also about the meaning of the material, like what does clay mean? How do I go beyond the idea of it's just being limited to craft, limited to just like pots and, you know, and cups and other utilitarian stuff. Because like, you don't even have to speak English. You don't even have to think about it from an American context. It's like, you could be in Korea, you could be in Mexico. And when you think of ceramics, the first thought is a cup, a pot, whatever. It's like a global um, idea of what we think ceramics to be. And right now, I think that artists working in clay are kind of like, they're, they're, removing that hierarchy or trying to scramble that hierarchy that no, like clay can be taken seriously. It's a part of, it's a part of sculpture now, man. There's just like a lot of materials in, in sculpture. And this is just one of them that, that fits right in and it's gaining a lot of popularity. So. I have to ask as someone who doesn't know much about the sculpture world, is clay considered like a, not as fine material to work with? It is now. It is now. No, 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 I no. I set the it, trend. It You're welcome. Yeah. No, no, no. It is now. I think it's started gaining momentum in like the 2010s. Like if anything, and I think it's. I think a lot of millennials. I'm. I'm thinking millennials for that. Mm, it's millennial art. Yeah, and then the you know the whole idea of millennial pink too. So it's like that's a lot of things that were influencing me too. It's like that whole aesthetic, and then also like vaporwave. Even though I was trying to figure out like how do I think of vaporwave and ceramics, it was something that I was really into in 2013 but never truly achieved that in my own aesthetic. And I'm kind of mad about it, but I'm definitely going to revisit it later on. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, there, there, there definitely is a hierarchy in, in sculpture. Like when it comes to like, oh, this material is better, you know, this material, whatever. With, with, I think, clay being or was at the bottom, like just being very crafty. It's like, oh, you're doing clay you're making a nice pot and then you're associating with being a pot at the very bottom of the sculpture. You know, if it, if it has a utilitarian function, it's pretty much not taken as seriously. Maybe because the whole idea of like, it's not intellectual enough. You know, it's like, how do you intellectualize a pot? You go to grad school. Yeah. You go to grad school, right? I mean, well, that's, that's bonkers thing though. There are MFA programs for ceramics, like that people, all they do is just like throw pots and, Oh, totally. Yeah. It, it's an interesting, something I'm thinking about while you're, when you mentioned, um, the hierarchies, I, I feel like for me in my time in grad school, like w- one of the things that I witnessed is that there seems to be a separation there 
when people get to grad school where they I, everybody is confronted with those hierarchies that exist in every medium, right? Of like, these are the things that you use when you're serious and these are the things that you use when you're campy and these are the things that you use when you're an amateur or whatever. I love a little um, camp though. Don't we all? <laughs> oh yeah. I, I, I think that is, I think that is a millennial thing as well. Um, I feel like in grad school is, is really the point where people decide, okay, I'm, I'm either going to buy into this, right? I'm going to be part of this. I'm going to work in these top tier materials and that's going to be what I do, or I'm going to subvert it in some way. And like, I feel like that divide becomes really apparent when people, even if they don't go to grad school, when they get to the point in their artistic practice where they're like, where they're thinking about things in that way, usually that is kind of where it happens. Like, does this hierarchy exist? Does it matter? And do I want to be a part of it? Yeah, I I love this ongoing conversation about like chiming in about grad school here and there because it's like I'm still slightly salty about not being in it, but at the same time, very thankful that I'm not a part of it because of the whole Zoom thing, right? But the one thing that really stood out during this whole experience of like looking into these program was pretentious ass Yale. Their asses like have a really wonderful sculpture program according to the, you know, the US rankings and all that good stuff. But they don't have a fucking ceramics facility. They don't have a kiln. And it's like, how do you how do you rank number one but in sculpture, but not, you know, it, I think that speaks volumes on like the whole hierarchies, you know. You know, it's like that that alone, it's like you're already eliminating any possibility of like expanding your own skill set. You know, it's like you're having this smorgasbord of, of, of skills that you're developing during grad school, you know, whether you're d- diving into photography and then, ooh, like, what if I make it more sculptural, you know? But now once you, re- once you eliminate a, a resource, it's like, is it, are you really number one? You know what I mean? It's like, if you, if you don't have this, are you really number one? <laughs> Who are you giving this money to? You know, <laughs> right. Where are you paying to give you that ranking of number one? Right. And that's part of the biggest opportunity in grad school, right? Is that you're just presented all these resources to help you cultivate your art. So how can you do that without even just giving the bare minimums of each resource? It's like, come on, you're giving these schools that loan money that you're receiving to buy these materials and pay for these resources and stuff like that. Come on. Right. You know, it's, it's bonkers. It's, it's, it's just bullshit. And I think that's the weird part too. It's like post post grad school is like, like knowing who continues their practice after they're done with school. And the other question is like, why do they stop their practice? I think that's one of the most important questions that I like to think about or fantasize about. It's like, why did they stop? Was it because of lack of resources? Was it because they were no longer motivated to make work? You know, there's just so many variables to this. And if a grad school is, you know, handing out these degrees, but these folks later on are not continuing their practice, it's like, what does that say about the program? If anything, it's like some grad schools don't want anything to do with you after you're done graduating. It's like, here you go. Here's your degree. Don't call us. We'll call you. Like, don't ever mention us ever again. Like with the faculty too. It's like, don't, don't talk to us. Fortunately, have a good relationship with the faculty at UC Davis. So, so like though. It, the community there can be intense. <laughs> that's a that's me being that's me being very democratic. It's an intense environment, you know. But what environments are not intense? And it definitely benefits from being intense. Yeah, it comes to this question of like what, which you mentioned before of of like how and why do we value a school, right? Like if they are missing, 
like you said, if it's missing a kiln, can it really be one of the greatest um, sculptural programs? It has a different focus, I guess, or or it has the name recognition. I'm, but I'm, I, so I'm wrapping up. I'm writing my thesis right now for San Jose State, uh, which is a whole other nightmare. I should have been done, but with the pandemic, they couldn't figure out how to graduate any of us. It's a shit show, and we're still figuring it out. I love it. I, I love this. I love all the fucking drama that's coming over with all these like folks in the middle of grad school and their last years and everything and all these stories of people getting fucked over. That's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. You're not alone. Oh, no, totally. And it makes it worse, right? Yeah. It's just so fascinating. For this. Yeah. And, and, and so it and it also makes it really difficult when you talk to people who are thinking about going to grad school, because on the one hand, it's like, yeah, you should totally go like it's a really great way to develop parts of your practice. But Jesus Christ, these institutions are fucked. Right. You know, and, and like with with the state school, one of the reasons why I've always liked state schools is because they less so in a graduate program, but even still like you are interacting with people who are not part of your practice, where if you go to a a private school, you know, especially a private art school, it's all artists. They're all there for the same reason. Um, And so it's a different experience, but not one I personally benefit from. But the flip side of that coin is that like at San Jose state for a lot of departments, the thesis books end up in the library, which is also the city library. It's a big deal. The art thesis, which is also plural, I learned that the other day, they end up in a cabinet, in an unmarked cabinet, in a nondescript office in the art building. And the only way that you can access them is if you go in during those office hours and ask for a key to the cabinet. And it's it turns into this question of, like, who are we benefiting? And also, like, how are you – one of the interesting things that has come out of that is that a lot of people who write thesis books don't – put in the full work for it because they know nobody's ever going to see it. And it's sort of this, this open secret of like, we're going to pull back because nobody's ever going to look at this. And so then who is that benefiting? And, and, and then if, like you said, if they go on and they don't have a practice, what was, what was the point of all of it? That is so disrespectful. Like for them to like pretty much lock that shit away. It's like, there's some students who I'm sure put so much time and energy into developing their thesis. That's some bullshit. You know, you're paying all this fucking money and then they're just going to be like, you know what? We'll just put this in a, you know, in a McDonald's bag. (laughs) That's art. There you go. We have this, we have this trash can where we put all of the uh, thesis books and um, thank you. They, they, they label the trash can thesis submissions and then you just like go in as a student, just like dump it in there. Right. It's one of those library drop boxes where like you, yeah. you put it in, but on the other side, it's just a dumpster. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's one of those automated shredders. You yeah. know? <laughs> You're just like walking by. It's like, what is that sound? It's like, Oh, it's just shredding someone's like hard work, you know? Right. By graduating from San Jose state, you unknowingly become part of a Banksy art piece and feed your book into a shredder. Oh no. Oh, that would be the ultimate Banksy piece. Oh, good Lord. I'm going to take a note about that. <laughs> Um, copyright it. Copyright that. Copyright yeah. it. <laughs> Banksy, you fucker, this is mine. <laughs> um, so you mentioned how difficult it is to like be making work right now. Um, I and and especially the kind of work that you are doing. Um, I'm wondering if you 
in spite of that are finding because of the way that the world is if in spite of all of it you are finding new directions to go in or if you see it changing your work at all yeah i'm trying to like right now i'm trying to do my own diy grad school and i really don't know what the fuck that even means in my own brain but right now like i'm just envisioning it as just like being a purely experimental moment where i'm just like familiarizing myself with completely new materials that I've never really toyed around with. Like I'm really interested in working with wax and like the idea of what even wax means. And by that, I'm like thinking about all these makeshift memorials that pop up around my neighborhood of like when someone gets shot or dies in a car accident or whatever, you know, they do candlelight vigils and stuff like that. It's like, I'm thinking a lot about that too. It's just like, ooh, like I kind of want to keep falling down that rabbit hole. And I think right now I'm just like in this moment of not necessarily wanting to complete work, but just like playing around and see where that leads me, where I can make like a good body of work where I feel comfortable. Like, okay, cool. Like maybe I want to show that because like these ring pieces that I have, like back over here, the ones that I was just talking about earlier, it's like, I'm, I'm tired of it. Like I've been working on this for a while. Like this is actually one of the first projects that I started off as soon as I graduated from Davis. Like, um, when I moved into my first studio, not here at Verge, um, I started making these. And they were actually, I like that you pointed out that they're very round because it's something that I really don't think that much about. But the earlier pieces that I made, like in 2014, they were so heavy. They were like really, really heavy. And they were so jagged and they were not colorful at all. They were all black. They were all like completely black. And I was not even thinking about color at the time. I was just thinking about the form. And... I just spent like a solid two years just like playing around with form. And then I didn't introduce color until I moved here at Verge, like into the studio here where I started thinking more about the color and seeing where that could take me. So I've been working on this for a minute and I'm like, I'm just tired of it. If I have to make one more, I'm going to like, I'm done. I'm quitting my practice. No, no, but that's the other thing too. It's like, I don't want to be that artist who just like sticks to one aesthetic and that's it. It's like, no, I want to, I want to do everything. And right now what what I did during the pandemic was this, like I have these drawings that I made and they were really meditative for me because I couldn't really think of, of new work to make. I was like so burnt out from the interviews and everything. And also the high of getting in and then also like experiencing the low of like, fuck, I guess I have to say no right now. Like that was a total complete bummer for me. So like I did so many drawings. So I love hearing how, you know, you're pulling your art intrinsically from within and from your surroundings and you, as you grow up. So I'm wondering um, if you have any artists that, you know, kind of know in the canon that are your influences to kind of how you approach art in your practice at all. I, okay, well, here's the gag though. And I'm, I'm embarrassed to say this. I don't think I'm really into ceramic art (laughs) 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 like I I really I I I don't think I like it well I mean I appreciate it and I appreciate everything the whole the historical context of it and I don't mean like pots and pans and stuff like that I mean like sculpture that was taking blowing up in the 60s and 70s here in California I mean but it's all done by white dudes and and it's just like I mean, when I was when younger, Daniel was really living for it. I was like, yeah, it's like big sculpture. Hell yeah. You know how to clay. <laughs> but like, I think when I started taking this way more seriously, I was just thinking like, oh man, like, I don't think clay really does it for me. And so I was like looking more into painting for influences. Like pain. Oh, I love painting. Painting is a big influence. Elizabeth Murray. Like she, 
I mean, rest in peace. She she's amazing. Was amazing. Is amazing. Whatever her work still exists. She doesn't. But yeah, her. And then I'm also been looking a lot into queer artists as well. Felix Gonzalez Torres is one of my favorite artists ever. I have like my little um, makeshift Felix Gonzalez Torres work. I'm like, where is it? Do you see it at the clocks? Oh yeah. Yep. <laughs> Like, that's reminiscent of him. I'm like, yeah, I love him a lot. Like, I want to get on his level because his work is just, like, so fucking romantic and it addresses violence, too. And, like, not only violence against queer people, but just violence against people in general. Like, his work is really, really poetic and I really want to get on that level. And then I've also been trying to work on not consuming as much white queer art. So I've been focusing a lot more on Mexican queer art. And one of my favorites is Ulysses Carrion. And he was actually, he studied English. And he decided to start doing more um, performance-based art, like after he was done with his degree and everything. And he moved back to Mexico, like in the 70s and 80s. Unfortunately, he died of AIDS. So it's like, if he was still alive, I would hella love to have a conversation with him. Same goes with Felix. Like all these folks that are like my idols i would love to to meet with them maybe in some other plane of existence i'll talk to them you know but um just as i think as a sign of compliment we were kind of talking about your art before and i know nothing about fine art but mason was talking about how you could identify felix gonzalez torres's work in your work so i think that is a fine compliment of mission accomplished Oh no. I'm like, I'm gonna cry. <laughs> it's like no. <laughs> wow, that's really like why do you I mean sorry, I'm like so curious, like why do you see that? Because it's like sure. I don't see that in myself yet, you know. Well, I mean part of it is is that Gonzalez Torres provided a real avenue in for me as a non spatial artist into ideas about installation and and what sculpture can be outside of traditional sculpture, but also like what conceptual art can really be like a billboard or clocks or whatever. And, and that they can carry real genuinely human connections. And so I think I go into a lot of installation style art with him in mind, right. Of, of, of just like, this is somebody who has, whose art I find really fascinating and really poignant and really care about. Um, and so that's part of it, right. Is like me being a photographer and being a writer, like I don't have the same Avenue in and except for these people that, that I've found. But also I think that part of it is like that sense of color and like that, the sense of form and shape. And like, I think maybe hearing you talk about it now was, I was picking up on, your ideas about like pushing back against the currently accepted, like this is the color of ceramics and this is the shape of ceramics. And this is the reason to make ceramics. I teach my photo students about him because when I'm teaching a beginning photo class, we get into conversations about, well, what is art? What can be art? And I love showing his piece of the pile of candy as a conversation about like, is this art? Totally. But why? I think that's why I fucking love Felix so much because he could, he could just take any everyday object and just be like, no, you know what? I'm going to attach this very sexy and poetic and romantic narrative <laughs> to whatever object I touch. 
you know, it could be a damn Starbucks coffee cup. And I'm sure if he was alive, he'd make it so like, oh, my heart, you know, like it's, it's so pure and, and wonderful. Well, and, and it's such an opposite energy to like, a, like a Jed piece, which oh, yeah. is, you know, like this is a polished aluminum box in the middle of a gallery and it will damage the gallery floor and it exists because I made it exist and it has no meaning. And it is just an example of my genius to paraphrase how he spoke about his own art. Oh, um, ew. I hate this bitch. I don't even know her. Yeah. Uh, but, but uh, I, I've always, I feel like it's really a counterpoint to that sort of approach of like, like you said, it, you know, here is, here's an object that arguably has, on its face as little meaning as a polished aluminum box. But in the way that I created it and approached it and have presented it, it has this very personal background and speaks to issues that are really genuinely important outside of just art can be a box, you know? Yeah. That's the weird thing about him that I really love. It's like, it's not pretentious, you know, like his work is very, very authentic, even though like, it feels like it should be pretentious. Yeah, a lot. that's the that's the weird thing. It's like you look at it. It's like oh, just a, like a, a strand of light bulbs. You know, it's like oh, what? Is, you know, you start rolling your eyes or whatever. Right. It's like what is this going to be about? And then you find the context of it, and it's like oh my god, this is this is wonderful. You know, it's like I think that's what I really love about Felix is like he he knew how to speak authentically about his work or like his ideas too. Whereas like Judd and even Carl Andre, which I fucking hate so much. Like I, I'm not going to give him the space for this right now and mention him and Gonzalez's name right now. But (laughs) the point is just like he, Gonzalez was just like able to make his work so authentic and real. Whereas like the other, the other men who are doing these works, it's like, it just comes off as pretentious. Like it's, it's important you know, in the canon of sculpture, it's very, very important to know the history. You know, I'm not saying it's not, it's just pretentious as fuck. At that moment, it wasn't, I'm sure. It was just like more like, oh, look, we're being edgy sculptors, you know, like, fuck you, MoMA, you know? Like. Right. <laughs> there, there was plenty of that. There's, there is a really wonderful article by An, Ann Shav, I think is her name. Um, it, she wrote it in Art Magazine in the 90s. And, and it's about the inherent patriarchy of that kind of sculptural work and and sort of the hidden history of of what the minimalists in the 60s and 70s were actually doing which was exerting their power as white men of privilege to just step all over the institutions and the viewer and and creating in a lot of cases genuinely dangerous work that injured and in more than one instance killed people and damaged these institutions i immediately thought of richard sarah <laughs> yes his work has killed people <laughs> right <laughs> right but it exists and it is genius because they said it was and they were part of the inner circle and and we hail them now because they did it but they could only do that because the point of the piece is that they could only make the work that they did because they were part of the institution that they were supposedly um tearing down And does that like literal danger kind of add to the mythology and quote unquote inherent value of these works? Does like Richard Serra's art, like my art is truly dangerous. (laughs) I don't know. I don't, I don't have a lot of context for like kind of a canon of this art. Everyone likes danger though. Just a little bit, just a little bit. I don't think it makes anything more valuable. 
I mean, well, think about it this way. No, I'm like, think about it. No, I was really trying to defend it somehow, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, one, one argument you could make is that we talk about it, right? Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why Sarah's work gets talked about is because it has killed people. Right. And And he's gotten sued. Right. But it also has this mystique of power. And, and anytime anybody writes about it, it's like, this is, this is work that is, you know, um, so there is inherent value in that, but it's also like how that institution operates. Um, very rarely do we ever hear about the history of female identifying minimalists in the sixties and seventies. It's like, and honestly, I'm very ashamed to say that I can't even think of one right now at this moment. Like, I can't think of one female minimalist from the 60s and 70s. And that's because, I guess, my art history courses failed me. And it's all the curriculum that failed me to include either works, you know. And I'm sure that there are making, they were making that work at the time, minimalism work. They were just not offered the space. And a lot of more women are becoming... Um, or given the space to show work in, you know, in 2020 or 2019, in the 2010s. And that's a wonderful thing. It's not enough still, of course. It's definitely not enough. And I think that's the other thing too, that is just like, that shows that this art world, quote unquote, is so, so, so fucked up that to the point it's like, okay, a women's only show, is this also a part of like the tokenization that's happening? And then it even comes even more complicated once you start throwing race into it or or sexual sexuality into it too it just becomes so it's it's a really fucked up thing it's 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 such a mess it's and now that we're being given the space to actually talk and exhibit works by people of color women of color i think it's really wonderful especially since our teachings about the artists from the past were mostly focused on white men the the people that wrote the history were the same ones that were had the ability to make it. Um, well, we're coming up on the end here. Um, this has been a really great conversation and thank you so much for coming on. It's been really good to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you. I know I could go, I could go on about this all day too. It's like, it's such a fun, (laughs) it's a fun topic. Well, if you ever want to come back, you're absolutely welcome as well. We would love to have you again. Uh, before we go, anything you'd like to plug and, uh, where can people find you? Yeah, for sure. I currently am curating a show at the Holland Project in Reno that is going to open towards the end of October. I don't know the exact date because I'm still, my brain's all over the place. But if you go into the Holland Project website, Google it, Holland Project Reno, the, the exhibition will, the exhibition information will pop up. And you can find me on Instagram at DNL Trejo. So D is in Daniel, as in Nancy, L as in Lisa, Trejo. Did you want to plug quickly, um, A, the Unibrow Collective? You can tell us a little, you know, a little short elevator speech about that. And do you want to talk about your billboard, you famous artist, your Save Art Space billboard in LA? Yeah. Um, Okay, so I'm one of the co-founders of the Unibrow Unibrow Collective. And the other co-founder is Natalie Valentina. And we pretty much came up with this collective when we were both working here at Verge and afterward and with our ships, we were just talking about it and we're like, oh, well, like, man, do you want to start something? You know, it just came out very casually. And we were just trying to figure out like, what should our first project even be? And we came up with Zine Fest because Sacramento has never, I mean, to our knowledge, has never had a Zine Fest. And we were trying to make it really, really big. And fortunately, we did two editions of that. 
And we were going to do the third one, but Miss Rona decided to show up <laughs> and ruin everything. So, but hopefully we'll have like another edition in the future. We exhibited collectively as you know, Brow in Mexico city in February of 2020. And that was like really, really fun. Cause Natalie came along and I showed her around like the neighborhood that I would frequently go as a child, my grandmother's neighborhood. And I was trying to avoid showing her all the touristy spots. So I was giving her like all that low, low, that good, good stuff, you know? So, and as far as the, the billboard, it's in LA, it's located on Melrose and North Mariposa. Do you want to tell us a little bit about like how that billboard came to be? Yeah. So they were asking for artists to submit works that um, identify as queer and I identify as queer. So I just pretty much went for it. And the theme was very open-ended. They were just trying to figure out to give space to, to these artists. And I actually like that idea a lot because the second project that I wanted to be with Unibrow actually wanted to be a, a billboard project. And in, in my brain, it really wasn't going to be a second edition of Zine Fest, although there were plans for that to happen. I wanted it to be something else. But the adjacent plan of Unibrow was the curatorial project that I organized. And that was just, just good enough. But the whole billboard thing, like I kind of want to piggyback off of that and try to do something that like that here in the, in the region. And I kind of want, I think it's a nice way to dis- disrupt any, any advertisements that harm the community too. In Stockton, I've been noticing that a lot of the advertisements on the billboards are like often advertising um, alcohol. And I mean, you know, it's like, why are you going to advertise alcohol to like us who are struggling right now? Like, don't, don't do that shit. So it's like, how do I, how do I take up that billboard and show fucking art instead that could like make people think differently of like, oh, like a billboard could be used for this. So that whole save art space, like that really, that kind of ignited something in me. So we'll see, we'll see what happens. Hope billboards aren't expensive, but I think they are. <laughs> they probably i'll google that shit later they probably are though. as somebody who's looked into similar projects i recall them being expensive enough that i stopped on that project but who knows it might be the area too hey listen we could collaborate and it could be like a gofundme type of a kickstarter because mm-hmm. i'm sure that's how the save art space people started off so totally, i mean they're yeah. crowdsourcing right now to to put up like works by trans artists all over the country so oh, cool. they're, yeah, they're collectively raising funds for that. Well, if you want to, if you want to collaborate on that, I'm always open to bringing on more work. Yeah. Well, thanks again for coming on. It's been really great talking to you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you too, Sean. Thank you. It's no Sam Studios. Well, actually, did I stutter?